when God is in something, definitely, it might look very foolish, but out of foolishness, he has always built strong things out of foolishness. So it's really a story of foolishness, and out of it, God has raised so many disciples, communities have been touched, and lives of people have been touched. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person and today's guest from Sierra Leone, church planter Shadanka Johnson. I'm Wayne Shepherd, looking forward to introducing you to Shadanka, who's seen God move in amazing ways in his country. If you are a new listener, this weekly conversation introduces you to interesting people from all walks of life who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and live a life of purpose serving the Lord. Our website, if you want additional information, is firstpersoninterview.com. There you can read more about today's guest, browse the audio archive of past programs you'd like to listen to, and see the schedule of upcoming interviews. It's all at firstpersoninterview.com, and we're also found on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Shadanka Johnson from Sierra Leone recently spent time in the U.S., and he came to the studio so we could talk about his own testimony and the incredible stories of God at work in his country. I have a family of seven. I have five boys and two girls. My wife is called Santa. I adopted three boys during the war, and um, I biologically have our four more kids. Hmm. You adopted those three boys during the war, which you told me started in Sierra Leone in 1991. Yes. All right. What were the circumstances that those boys were going through? Um, those boys, were, we had a lot of um, victims of the war, people who suffered from the war. But two of the boys that I adopted, one of them had, they went to a village and they killed their parents and he had his right leg cut off. Mm. And that's how I adopted him as my son. And then the other one was at the age of one and they killed the spirit and they used the boot of the gun to bash his face. His face was badly damaged and they left him under the rain to die. And when we got to this village, we saw him and that's how I took him. And he also became my son. Mm. How are those boys doing today? Oh, they're doing extremely well. They're doing, they've grown up. They're doing extremely well. Uh-huh. So they're young adults now, huh? They're young adults. Ex- and young adults and, but any time I look at them, you know, it reminds me of the war. Right. The war, um, it deeply scarred your country, didn't it? It did. It did. Um, it, it brought everything to a standstill. The economy was damaged. Life was disrupted. A lot of people died. A lot of... People left the country, and uh, we had a lot of internally displaced people. People were internally displaced. And we also had refugees from Liberia come because there was also a war in Liberia. So that, that was the situation. During the war, you felt compelled to go and assist those who were the victims of the war. Tell me about some of those days. Yes, um, during the war, you know, a lot of people left the country. I had the opportunity to really leave the country, but I, I really felt the impression that it was time for me to stay and work with my people. So I stayed. Part of what we were doing is that we would go to communities where maybe after the fighting, when they attack the community and everybody runs away, we would go and look for people who are wounded or people who are dead. Uh, the dead, their times, we bury them in a mass grave. The wounded people would try to help and bring them to a place of safety. You had to bury bodies during the war. Yes, we did a lot of that. Oh, that's unimaginable. Yes, we had to do it because if not, a lot of people were just left there and they, they just kind of wasted away. What caused that war in the first place? Well, the war was really a political war. First, it was a war because the, we had a, a leader and a president who had been in power for like uh, 24 years. He, had, he was a dictator. And uh, in the process of being a dictator, he, he, we had a one party. He introduced a one party government and he killed a lot of political opponents. The, the economy of the country was really 
drained and the treasury was, was looted. Uh, life was a challenging thing. People worked for months without salaries. And the hospitals, there were no medicines. And schools, education became a privilege. And the list is so long. Mm. Because of all of these things, some of the political opponents, one of the guys who was also part of the army, went back in Libya. And he was trained. And then he came back and he became a rebel leader. Okay. So during the war, you were a believer. Going, I was a believer. You were a pastor at that time? Yes, I was a pastor. And going time. into these places and, and assisting and doing whatever you could do. But, yes. But I guess you, you kind of became the man in the middle in that war, didn't you? Yes. And the, the process of doing that, because, you know, the atrocities were committed by different sides in the war. We had the rebels committing the atrocities. We had the civil militias, which, you know, were also committing atrocities. And then we had the government who was also committing atrocities. So somebody needed to speak out. So in the process, I really started to preach and speak out against what was happening, what they were doing in different communities. And so I was also a friend of each, either of the parties. Yeah, one of the times that I was arrested, I was arrested by a notorious commander who was very notorious. And they tied me and they put my hands behind the, my back so much that my fingers could touch the back of my neck. Oh. And I was in pain. And this man was, he was just screaming and he was shouting and said, I'm going to kill you. When I kill you, go and tell your God that I, commander, has killed you. Oh. And while he was doing that, I bowed down my head and I said, Lord, if this is the time for me to die, I'm willing to die. But please, God, give me boldness to talk to this commander. You thought you were going to die then? Yeah, I really thought I was going to die because I had seen the kill so many people in that way so i lifted up my head and i said commander please give me five minutes i want to talk to you and the commander said go ahead and speak any nonsense because you're already a dead man anyway i'm going to kill you and i said commander please do me this favor i want you to accept jesus as your lord and personal savior i said because right now if you accept jesus as your lord and personal savior and you turn around and shoot me god will forgive you when you die you go to heaven i said because right now commander there are angels waiting to take me to heaven if you kill me I said, Commander, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And his hands are widely open, waiting to receive you. Why I was saying that, he had a pistol and his boys had AK-47 in their hands. I saw his pistol, you know, drop a little bit in his hands. And he looked at me and he told his boys, untie this man. Let him go. Something is wrong with his head. He's not a normal man. Let him go. So that's how I was, I was untied and I was let go. Yeah, but that's not the end of the story. No, that's not the end of the story. A few weeks down the road, commander came to my hideout where I was hiding and he wanted to talk to me. And so we went under the tree and we were talking. And Did you think he was coming to arrest you again? Yeah, of course. That's what was in my mind. I thought he, you know, he was coming to arrest me or maybe to even kill me. But this time I was bold enough because I had already had the first encounter with him. <laughs> and, uh, and then the way he came, he was not in that mood that we normally see from the commanders in the war. And he said to me, I really want to talk to you. And we went aside under the tree and he said, since that day when you told me that if I die, I don't have a place to go. And you told me that I will go to hell. Since that day, I go to bed, I sleep. And I, I lie down, I don't sleep. I've been thinking of what you told me. So that's why I was looking for you. That's why Commander became my friend. And eventually, I started telling him the story about Jesus. Commander got saved. He was baptized. I discipled him. And even as I speak today, you know, he was not indicted. He's in the country and he's attending a church. He's attending church today as a believer. As a believer. The man who threatened you with a pistol yes. uh, just fell short of pulling the trigger when you feel the Lord's Spirit spoke through you. Yeah, and today he's a disciple of Jesus. Amazing, just amazing. Tell me more about the makeup of your country. I know there's, it's, there's a very large Muslim population, right? Yes, the country has a very large Muslim population. Um, we, we had roughly more than 70% of the population 
been Muslim mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone. In as much as we have lived, coexisted with the Muslims for a very long time in a very peaceful manner, but eventually things started to change, as you know, what is happening around the world today. So, But eventually, what we have tried to do, we have been praying, we have been working alongside with them, but we equally have been planting churches among them, and we have seen a lot of them come so to So there's Jesus. been a rise of uh, radical Islam in your country? Uh, we have not seen it the way we have seen it in other countries, but we see the, the training, you see the small training camps that they normally have, you see the way they are beginning to dress. Things are changing, and that's how gradually things change and become radical. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a church planter. Yes. And uh, we'll get into some of the exciting things that are going on. But when you move into a village to plant a church and there are Muslims in that village, I mean, how are you – what's your strategy? How do you how do you win their support, so to speak? Uh, one of the strategies we do is that most times when we go to communities, we try to find out what is the need of the community. What is the need of the community? We do what we call an access ministry. We find a need of the community. And once we discover the need, we begin to walk through that need of the community. That's what we, it may be a school, it can be agriculture, it can be a well. And we, together with the community, we begin to work towards it. While we're doing this, for example, if it's agriculture, we have people who are trained agriculturists, but they're also trained church planters. So you don't go in and declare yourself Christians no. and start a church right away. No, no. You find a felt need in the community, and, and yes. that's, that's your entry point. That's our entry point. Okay. So we walk through those felt needs of the community, and together the community leaders, we kind of have a plan and a strategy how to go about it. And once the process begins, the people who come in, whether it's going to be agriculture, whether it's going to be digging of well, whether it's going to be school, whether it's going to be clinic, these are all people. They are not only trained in their areas, but they're also well-discipled and trained church planters, and they know how to tell the story. So once we're there, we begin to find a person of peace. A person of peace is simply a person who God has prepared in that community to receive you. You know, it can be a Muslim. You trust be... that God's gone ahead of you yes. and prepared a person of peace yes. that you can work with. Yes, because one thing we do is that we spend a lot of time praying. And that's what we saw Jesus do. You know, he said, when you go to any town, look for a person. You look for a family that can receive you. Any family that receives you, he says, stay in the home of that family. If they can't receive you, take the doors. So we call that family or a person a person of peace. And so that's what we do. Once we find a person of peace, we normally say, once you find a person of peace, the job is half done. <laughs> and we stay with that person of peace. We begin to tell the story. We create a relationship first. And then out of the relationship, we begin to tell the story. The story simply is a story from creation. You know, we start with creation and then gradually we navigate until we come to the place of Jesus. And once we are telling the story and with all those pieces are put together, at the end of the day, we ask the question, do you know why Jesus did this? And this is for you and me. And now the person of peace will ask, what do you want me to do? Hmm. You know, to be like Jesus. And then that's how we bring them together. And once they accept Jesus, we now begin what we call a discovery Bible studies with them. Mm-hmm. And from that process, later they are baptized and a church is started in that community. How many churches have been planted in Sierra Leone? In Sierra Leone alone, we have planted, conservatively, we planted more than 3,000 churches. 3,000 3, churches. churches. The average size of our churches are like 48. Once we are telling the story, we begin to tell the story. The story from creation. Once we tell the story, we always tell the story at night when they come from their farms or from their walk. And when we begin to tell the story, we always get to what we, a, a climate point where they want to hear more and we stop the story at that point. <laughs> and we tell them, you know, we'll continue the story tomorrow. Join us next time. Yeah, when... <laughs> just, yeah, when, when, you know, come next. And when you're coming, by the way, can you invite a friend or a family member who will come and tell the story? Because our focus is family. We try to focus on the family uh-huh. because we're working among people who they work as a family. And once the leader makes a decision, that decision is for all of them. 
Coming up on today's program, more stories of God at work in Sierra Leone. Stay tuned. Last year, the Far East Broadcasting Company received over 2 million responses to its broadcasts, reaching people throughout Asia and beyond. And the stories they tell of lives changed by the gospel and the new hope and purpose they have found in Christ is outstanding. When you visit FirstPersonInterview.com, be sure to click on the FEBC banner. Find out about the daily devotional, How Shall They Hear, telling many of these stories. That's the FEBC banner at FirstPersonInterview.com. My guest today is Shadanka Johnson from Sierra Leone, a pastor and church planner. Tell me the story, Shadanka, of the radio station that helps with church planting. You know, when we are doing this, we are doing the church planting, we had, I had this dream and desire to have a radio station. And so I wrote it in my dream file. I have what I call a dream file. A dream file. Where, yes. where, did, where did that dream come from, though? You may, I mean, obviously, it has to be the Lord putting that on your heart, right? Yes, it has to be the Lord because we spend time to pray. And once we spend time to pray and the Lord lays some things in my heart and then I write it and that becomes my dream file. And every day when I'm praying, I will take my dream file to the Lord and say, God, you know, this is what... I'm believing you. This is what I begin to pray. Every day we are praying about that thing. So one day, you know, we had some people who went to visit, uh, one of the guys who went to visit, and we were talking. And I told him about the dream fire. And he said, what is a dream fire? And I said, well, this is a dream that the Lord has laid in my heart that, you know, for the work that I need to do. But it's a, it has something come to pass. We would label that a calling. <laughs> you, you have a calling yes. to start a radio station. Yes. So eventually there was this radio station there. There was a radio station on the Dreamfire that we were praying for a radio station. But there was no radio station. Was, there, was no radio. there was no license at that point. No, there was no license. It was only was, a dream. It was only a dream. That's why I call it Dreamfire. <laughs> it was only a dream. And so eventually what happened was that um, he saw it and he said, man, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to have my Dreamfire. I'll bring it before God. And he came back to the state. He said he went to a meeting. In that meeting, why did we were discussing it was like lunch, and so they were discussing. And so he met a guy, and he was asking the guy, what do you do? And the guy said, oh, you know, we do radio stations in Africa and all of that. And then he remembered my dream file. <laughs> he, he, and then he called me. He said, I have a friend in Africa, in Sierra Leone. Will you help him? You know, he needs radio and all of that. And the end is that the guy said, oh, yes, I'll be glad to help him if he can have a license. And so that's how the discussion started. I was called and I went in and the government gave me the license. And so that's how we started the radio station. Only radio God st- could put all those pieces together. It is only God. It is only God. It's a God thing. That's the issue. <laughs> that's why we spend more time in prayer so that the Lord will move, so that he will do what he wants to do yeah. and when he wants to do it. How long has the station been on the air? Well, the station has been on the air for the past seven years. All right. Yeah. And what's it like to listen to it? What, what do you do on the radio station? We, we, we have messages, you know, from different preachers and pastors. We have teachings of the gospel. We have gospel music. We have local gospel music there. We have um, other programs. For example, we raise awareness. We have educational programs for schools, kids. They do like a lot of English you know, so that kids will learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, during the Ebola, when schools were shut down, our radio station was used a lot for educational program. They had a school through the radio. So people, kids would take their pens and pens and sit down. You have teachers who come with English, with chemistry, all this different they're teaching, but it has to be through the radio. And we have used it during the Ebola. We use it extremely to raise awareness and bring songs and have doctors, medical doctors come. People come and talk about the radio. And it was a great tool to raise awareness. Is it just Christians who listen? 
No, we have people, interestingly, we have people who are not Christians who listen to our radio station. You know, we have Muslims listening to the radio station, have different people are listening to the radio station because when we open a phone line, we, people will call from different areas, you know, and say, oh, I'm a Muslim, but I love this teaching that was done. I love this preaching. or oh, I love this song, this song. This song played a great role in my life. Uh, I was at this point of disappointment, but this is what happened. So we have all these testimonies that we come in. And then we have people who call and say, we're in this village, but we need a church. We don't have a church in our village. Can you please come and plant a church? How so, many people do you think the radio station reaches? About 1.5 million people. Is that right? Yes. So it's, 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 it's really a wonderful blessing. Huh. It's really a wonderful tool. You mentioned Ebola. Uh, Sierra Leone was hit hard, as many African countries were with Ebola. When did that first begin? The Ebola started in Sierra Leone sometime in June. Okay. In June, last year. Last, year. Just last year. Yeah. All right. And um, How many lives have been taken? Well, roughly, I mean, what is on paper is about 10,000, but that's a conservative figure. Hmm. It, that's, more people died out of that. We don't if really you, know, do We you? don't really know, because, yeah. but that's just a conservative figure. Right. But a lot of people died. Mm-hmm. A lot of people died out of Ebola. And what were you able to do during that crisis time? What we did was that when we were able to raise awareness, we used the radio to raise awareness, but we also went from community to community. We went to several communities, and we did some, we did some seminars on Ebola. So we told them how people get infected and how they should prevent it. And uh, if people are sick, what they're supposed to do. We distributed T-shirts that were raising awareness. We also were able to provide food in some communities. We provided some food um, that also to people who had the Ebola disease. Did you find that people had to be educated about Ebola? I mean, touch. The, the infected patients, that kind of thing? Yeah, we had to because a lot of people, the, the mood of transmission was through touching, washing of dead bodies and, uh, you know, in a gathering. So what we did was we tried to raise awareness. Other organizations, other groups did the same, but we were raising awareness from community to community just so that people will know because if you prevent it, then definitely you don't have it. And then also if somebody's sick, somebody's infected with the virus that you needed to call rather than touching the person or call a hospital who people who are specialized to come and take that person if somebody dies don't touch the body don't wash the body you know don't bury the body you know all of those awareness because it was part of our culture touching hugging you know washing dead body mm-hmm. it's just part of our culture it's a cultural dynamics mm-hmm. and so we are trying to raise awareness because these were the moods of transmission so you were truly a community radio station serving your community with vital information. Very much. And we have been doing that from since the inception of the radio. That's what we have been doing. We serve the community in different areas, whether it's going to be issues of politics that we need to let people know, information, whatever it is. Yeah. But we have been doing that. Yeah. has to be a lot of leftover grief from those who lost family members during that time. It's, a, it's an opportunity to uh, share the love of Christ, isn't it? It is. And we have used it. We also use it as a platform to really demonstrate the love of Christ. Mm. We use it as a platform to reach out to people who are right now, you know, they are very discouraged, they are grieving. And we, we, are, we are able to reach out to them. And we have songs that we sing over the radio that we encourage them and motivate them. And and have messages that people will give, leaders and pastors will give as a way to encourage them. So it, it has been a wonderful tool because we had testimonies from people who said, you know, had it not been for the radio, you know, this is how I was supposed to do. But thank God for the radio. We've talked about the big picture. I want you to talk about some of the people involved. Think of a person right now that has a testimony of coming to faith in Christ and being trained and developing this calling, this passion to start churches. Tell me about some of these young people. One of the things we do is that we, we reach out to ordinary people. We, we, in as much as the professionals might be at the background, but we really use ordinary people. It's an, it's an, an ordinary people's movement. Mm. We have seen people who never went to school, but now they can disciple people 
and they are planting churches. They never went to school. Are you my, thinking of anyone in particular? Right my now? mom is an, my mom, for example. My mom is she's a stark illiterate. Never went to school. She was a Muslim. She got saved because of me. And now my mom is the lady intercessor in the ministry. But not only that, my mom runs her own small group. She has planted several churches. She has discipled people who are also planting churches. And, but she never went to school. But my mom can quote scriptures and she will explain the scripture. She will tell you, turn to John chapter 15, verse 5. She's quoting it already before you are turning there. And she's <laughs> explaining it to you. And you have several people like that. We have blind church planters, completely blind. They are blind. They cannot see, completely blind, and they are planting churches, and they are raising disciples. We have women who are palm oil sellers, ordinary women, training and planting churches. We have men who are doing every type of person. We have fishermen, we have the carpenters, we have mechanics. We have all different backgrounds of people, shades of people, who are willing to go into communities. They are planting churches, and they are raising disciples. The Word of God is powerful. It's living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And you're seeing that firsthand, aren't you? Every day. Before I came, we just baptized 25 people. 23 of them were Muslims. And we are seeing it every day. It's not impossible. And in restricted countries, like countries that are difficult to go, it it will surprise a lot of people how many secret baptism has been done. I'm sure you understand that as we look into the church in Sierra Leone and all that you're doing, we just have to scratch our heads and wonder, how do you do it with the standard of living as low as it is, and yet you accomplish all this that puts, puts us to shame in many ways? How do you account for that? Well, first we want to say that we have partners here who have been very faithful in standing with us and helping us. But secondly, we have always said we'll, do it, we'll use what we have until we get what we want. We use what you have. Want to get, get what, what you want. want. So we have started some of these churches. You know, it's interesting. You go back home. Some of the churches, when they tell you the story, it started on a touch. People went to the bush. They have touch. They did the stick together and they put the touch on top. <laughs> and that's it. The benches are all made out of sticks and they're worshiping and they're happy. You know, and the Lord is faithful. The Lord show up. There are times that we show up and then he provides something bigger than that. But we are not waiting. So the school, some of them, as I said, are starting a makeshift building. Some of them under trees. We start. If we have 10 cups of rice to plant, we plant it. We just take one step at a time. Believe God. Because we normally say God is the impossibility specialist. <laughs> He's the only one who specializes in possibilities. And so faith is the currency of heaven. So basically, we know faith is the currency of heaven. Faith is the currency of of heaven. heaven. Boy, that'll preach. And God is an impossibility (laughs) specialist. So eventually, we just have faith and we believe in the impossibility specialist. Because I've never seen a professor who say, I'm a professor in impossibilities. But God is is. He is a professor in impossibilities. So we trust him and we believe him. And by faith, we move out. So it's really just leaning on the impossibility specialist and by faith, just stepping out. I really enjoyed our conversation with Shadanka Johnson today. I hope you did as well. A church planter, pastor from Sierra Leone. You can read more about him at our website, firstpersoninterview.com. And I hope you'll take a moment to learn even more about the stories we've heard today. Firstpersoninterview.com. You can also leave a comment at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. These programs are always archived at our website, and you can use our smartphone app to listen as well. It's available for iPhone and Android devices, and you can download it in your favorite app store. These weekly interviews are made possible through the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company. My thanks to FEBC for including us in their vision of taking Christ to the world through radio. 
Take some time this week to explore the ministry of FEBC. You can start at firstpersoninterview.com and click on the link found there. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you back next week for First Person. First Person.